welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Hello and welcome to IOM3 Investigates. I am Alex Brinder, the journalist on the Institute's member magazine, Materials World and Clay Technology. Today, I'm hosting a podcast on increasing scrutiny around greenwashing and what that means for industry. Our guests today are Denise Matheson, a senior manager in sustainability and external affairs at circular packaging provider FERC Group, with many years of experience in packaging, including at the major UK retailer Tesco. We've also got Chris McDonald with us, who's the chief executive officer of the UK Materials Process. Institute, which conducts industrial research into advanced materials and the circular economy, and Richard Reichman, who is a lawyer with London-based BCL solicitors specialising in regulatory investigations, including experience of ESG compliance cases. First of all, thank you very much for joining me and welcome to you all. To kick things off, there was a study from the European Commission in 2020, which found that over half of environmental claims in the EU were found to be vague, misleading, or unfounded, with 40% of them unsubstantiated. What does greenwashing mean to you and why might it be a concern in your industry? Denise. Well, firstly, Alex, thank you for the invitation. Um, happy to take part. Greenwashing is a huge concern. If we want to get meaningful behavioural change from consumers, then they have to trust in what we say. An industry needs to be open and transparent. Any claim should be substantiated. I've seen so many greenwashing claims around recyclability, for example. I know it's rubbish. It causes confusion for customers. We lose their trust. It just can't be right. Biodegradable, for example, is often shown in a positive light, but a house brick will degrade in time. And home compostable, where under 10% of households, I believe, don't compost themselves. And AD plants, so where we do industrial food waste recycling, they don't even want compostable caddy liners. So selling something as being degradable or compostable can't be right. It causes a negative impact on their processing. And we see lots about LCA's life cycle analysis. I came from a place where I was sceptical of life cycle assessments, for example, believing that whoever paid the bill for it got the outcome they wanted. Trust me, during my tenure at Tesco, I saw many examples of that to make me form that opinion. However, now the tables are turned. I sit over the LCA process in FERC. I know that we come at it with a straight bat. If there's any detail missing, we favour the competitor's proposition. This enables me to stand with confidence over all of our claims, to know that they're measured, transparent and unbiased. The detail we provide is always very clear and the rest of industry needs to talk to consumers in exactly the same way. Chris? Um, hi, thanks, Alex. It's really lovely to be joining the podcast. And, and I'd agree with everything that Denise has said there, but also maybe I, we could look at this 
as well as uh, business to consumer organisations, also business to business organisations, you know, in the, in the industrial world that I inhabit. And whilst it's undeniable that for some companies, greenwashing, you know, using green objectives essentially as a marketing tool is an issue. But what I actually see particularly in small businesses, a business is really trying to do the right thing. They, they really do care about the environment. They're trying to do the right thing. But it's very complex to be able to understand what's required and also to be able to present that in the right way too. So I think one of the things Denise has alluded to there is, is a lack of standardization in terms of what these these words mean. Um, so, you know, what, what the objectives are. I agree with Denise, life cycle assessment is something that we do at the Materials Processing Institute, and clearly there are a lot of decisions you would make uh, when you're doing the life cycle assessment. That means one LCA might not be comparable with another. And I think this is something that many IUM3 members would recognise as well. So we've got a lot of engineers and members of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining, engineers like me, I'm a chemical engineer, and we recognise that uh, when you go in to solve a problem, if there are lots of different components of that problem that are kind of competing with one another, then you can get quite different outcomes. You know, it's about optimising. And I think what a lot of engineers and a lot of business owners struggle with is, well, where is the best place to optimise this to get the best environmental output from our process? So so I think there are a lot of people out there who are really trying to do the right thing, but they're in a landscape that they find confusing, where there are lack of standards. And that ultimately, what that means is it's very, very difficult to make a comparison between one organisation and another and one product and another, which is precisely what consumers want to do, uh, what citizens want to do as well. And so I think what would really help with in this this area of greenwashing uh, would be some more regulation and standards that people could look to uh, and adhere to and to demonstrate that they're following them. Thanks, Chris. Maybe we can get more onto the regulation later. Richard. Alex, thank you for inviting me to take part in the podcast. It's a really interesting and topical area. Broadly speaking, greenwashing is making misleading claims about green credentials to appear more climate friendly or sustainable than is actually the case. And in terms of why it's a concern, from a lawyer's perspective, Such claims can harm consumers, they can harm other businesses, and regulators and civil society are increasingly taking action to try to prevent this. And that gives rise to a number of risks. There's a regulatory risk, so it can be a criminal offence or a breach of various rules to make misleading claims. And we're generally at the guidance and warning stage, but there's a clear direction of travel towards enforcement action. And we'll almost certainly see large fines against corporates which ignore the warnings. There's a litigation risk, and we're seeing a sharp increase in novel climate-related civil litigation. And finally, there's a reputational risk, which is really significant, because even if there's no regulatory or civil liability, allegations of greenwashing in themselves can be hugely damaging. Thank you. That's very interesting. Okay, so for our second question, a report from Planet Tracker identifies six types of greenwashing. Green rinsing, they identify that as where a company is constantly changing its ESG targets to avoid meeting any of them to green lighting, which they classify as trumpeting one aspect while ignoring the rest, to green hushing, where companies report the bare minimum of ESG requirements to avoid criticism. Why do you think, you may have alluded to this already, but why do you think it is a growing problem? So I think it's really the desire to take action 
that's changed. The relevant criminal offence, the, the main offence under the Consumer Protection from Unfair Trading Regulations to 2008 has, has obviously been in place for some time and sectoral rules have been in place. But what I think there is now is greater policy activity. So as a result of acknowledgement of the twin crises of loss of biodiversity and climate change, and the UK's desire to be carbon net zero by 2050, and also greater consumer understanding and desire to make sustainable choices. And so the combined effect of that is that companies are more incentivized to make green claims because sustainability can sell products. And at the same time, regulators are more focused on preventing misleading ones due to the harm that can be caused. Thanks, Richard. Chris, did you want to come in on this question? Yeah, so Alex, I uh, I do recognise that this is a growing issue, but I think I can also, uh, and you know, Richard described it very well there, but I think I can also build on some of the points I made before, which is it's important when we uh, when we see that this rise in in some of these uh, greenwashing areas to separate out the bad actors the people who are out there really trying to willfully you know pull the wool over people's eyes they're, they're not really concerned about the environment they're using this as a marketing tool from organizations that are trying to do the right thing but finding it difficult to negotiate a very complex environment um so for instance the one aspect that struck out you know to me on there this this issue of green lighting you know trumpeting one aspect whilst ignoring the rest it is true that you know companies do need to prioritize and particularly when it comes to carbon emissions from some of the industries that i work with some of the energy intensive industries steel metals cement and so on then there will be a few point sources of emissions and that's where the company's priorities and efforts will go but of course there are wider environmental concerns as well around uh, biodiversity around the use of raw materials uh, materials resources you know where those raw materials come from in the world as well there are ethical considerations there as well as environmental considerations and it's not that they are not important but in terms of environmental impact they're not as great so they you know they're not talked about as much within the business and they're not where where the business resources are so do think that it's important that we separate this out into those two areas we work with with the companies that are genuinely making improvements and help them to make better improvements and help help with their understanding but then come down very hard on those businesses that are not addressing this issue and that's why i think that some form of standard and compliance checking and so on will be incredibly helpful because it can really you know show show up the bad actors but also give due credit to those organizations that are really trying to make an effort Thank you, Chris. I mean, that moves us neatly onto the next question, which is for both Chris and Denise, really, that in your respective sectors, are the challenges around data collection, data analysis? And I think you've already both referred to what you feel is a lack of standardization of life cycle assessments that could inadvertently be raising questions around transparency. Yes, I'm happy to continue there, Alex. I mentioned my organisation, the Materials Processing Institute. We do carry out life cycle assessments for, for different companies. And most of the companies in the industrial supply chains that we work with are experiencing market pressure to be very clear about the embedded carbon emissions in their products. There are big players, for instance, in the steel sector, big customers in the automotive sector, in industrial as well. You know, Aker, the uh, Norwegian business, they announced recently that they want to buy green steel. We've heard similar from Mercedes. So the premier, a lot of the premier clients in the steel sector are saying, look, we want to buy green steel and we want the steel companies to demonstrate that it's green. We're also working in cement as well. And there are cement companies getting similar requests, particularly for contracts in the public sector as well, that they have to provide 
provide cement with the with the lowest possible carbon emissions. So there's a big market pressure on businesses to deal with that, and they therefore you know commissioning life cycle assessments. So Alex, um, I've already mentioned that uh, the Materials Processing Institute we carry out life cycle ass- assessments for the industries we work with. It's largely what we call the foundation industries: steel, metals, cement, and so on. And these industries are experiencing pressure from the market to demonstrate their green green credentials. So we've had automotive companies such as Mercedes say that they only want to buy green steel. And in the industrial sector, Acre from Norway as well, they they said similarly just last week, in fact, that that, uh, they they will be looking for green steel in the future. And for public sector projects, uh, the cement companies are being asked to demonstrate that they're, they're producing the most environmentally friendly cement too. So in order to sell their products in the market, companies are being asked this, these questions and they need to provide the data to their clients in an appropriate format uh, to be able to demonstrate that. But there are difficulties. So not to get too technical about it, but clearly emissions that are in a product come from various different places. They come from the processing of the product. They come from the energy supplies. We we have a name for that. We call that scope two emissions. And they also come from the um, uh, raw materials as well, or the inputs to the process. Uh, we call those scope three emissions. And for a steel company, for instance, that could be the raw materials that we buy. It could be iron ore, it could be lime, it could be uh, alloying materials as well. And that, that last bit, those scope three emissions, they can be quite difficult to quantify in terms of our carbon emissions because they're generally internationally traded commodities. They're probably not produced in the UK, even if it's a UK company that's producing the steel. And and, and so then comparing between different companies and different processes can be very difficult. And actually, they can be the bulk of the emissions as well. So there are big, big challenges for companies in the industry to in these foundation industries to satisfy the requirements of their clients. And of course, you know, if their client is an automotive company, then at the end at the end of that, the product's going to be a car that, you know, you or I might buy. And we want to understand what the green credentials of that car are as well. So um, so I think working all the way back through the supply chain, there are big challenges about how this data is collected. And it really goes back to my point about standardization. I think unless we have some sort of standard processes for these supply chains, how, you know, in terms of the decisions that we make, some guidelines, some standards, then we'll find that actually the our ability as consumers to make a choice between products to get the most green or most environmentally friendly product will in fact uh, be very difficult. Thanks Chris. So Denise do you agree with that that we need more standards that there just isn't a like-for-like comparison for no, things I, like life cycle assessments? No I would agree with you. Recent, so I joined FERC back in end of November last year after quite significant time at Tesco. As I said, I was really sceptical about LCAs. FEC had already invested in a particular software system to conduct their LCAs. I took on reviewing that software and comparing it to other software systems. You can get quite different results, so it's difficult. We use the software that we use, and I believe it is fair, but it allows us to input a significant amount of data to produce what we believe to be an accurate analysis on a given piece of packaging. But it's often very, very difficult to collect all the data that is required. But without it, we simply can't and won't conduct an LCA because the result would be skewed. It'll give a false reading, but it can be a really powerful tool. It can allow us to do a direct comparison of one material against another and whether we come out from a plastic perspective, good or bad, we openly share that data with our customers. I believe that they're accurate. They'll stand up to scrutiny. 
as I suggested earlier, I'd, I came from a place where, quite simply, with little knowledge, I could shoot holes straight through some of the analysis I've seen. So I'm happy with where we are, but I, I do believe there should be standardisation. And I, th- I think as an industry, we should be clearer and trusting and share the data that we do have to enable everybody to play on a level playing field and get the right results at the end of the day. And that will prevent greenwashing. And do you have issues around tracking scope three emissions, which are other people's scope two and things like that? Yeah, there's there is a lack of understanding. I mean, you know, I came, as I say, from a very, very large organisation where we had specialists that looked after each of these different topics. And I think as the retailer, we were able to stand over. But I think there is an awful lot of complexity and a lot of misunderstanding. We at Beck have just employing a new group ESG lead um, that will sit on the exec, which kind of shows to us how important that the subject is, just to try and make sure that we're truly aligned. But yeah, I think there's a little, a lot of misunderstanding and a little bit of misinformation out there too. There's that misinformation and misunderstanding. Do you think those are specific challenges for packaging, which is especially in the eye of the storm when it comes to public demand for change and claims on greenwashing? I think it probably is. But, you know, since Blue Planet, for example, was released Mm. how many years ago now, it's inspired and highlighted the problem of plastic in the environment. However, there lies the problem. Plastic's been demonised. In the main, through no fault of the material. After all, you don't find many £20 notes down the side of motorways or in the ocean, do you? But plastic and other packaging are commonly littered. As I said earlier, it's human behaviour. And it is human behaviour that we need to influence for positive change. Blue Planet prompted a reaction. One hell of a reaction, let me tell you. And there's been tremendous pressure for material change from some quarters. But we shouldn't be frightened of using plastic, for example. In the right application, it should should be viewed as the material of choice. It protects food and extends shelf life. Food waste in itself is a bigger issue from a CO2 perspective than any packaging. I believe the key is education. Everything with me comes down to education, clarity and communication. Educating the public so they better understand what and why and more importantly, what to do with it at its end of life. Consistent labelling would definitely help, but we need industry to stop scaremongering and work together towards true circularity of materials. You know, right materials can be used time and time and time again. And in my view, it should be encouraged. Chris, for um, you've already talked about resource intensive industries like, sorry, businesses like the foundation industries, such as metal production who are often faced with massive capital investments as the only way to fully decarbonise their production. How can companies like this talk about what they're doing to show they're taking steps, however incremental, without over-regging their environmental credentials? Well, that's a really good point, Alex. I mean, I think the steel industry alone accounts for about 10% of uh, CO2 emissions. You add metals and cement onto that, you know, and it's, it's, it's a significant percentage. And the challenge here with these industries is that the carbon emissions are very much embedded in the way that the the materials are produced. 
Um, so it's not a case of, you know, let's switch over to elect- you know, an electric uh, production. And we really have to design, redesign the entire process route. And that is big in terms of capital investment. In fact, I've estimated that uh, to green the UK steel industry will require about £6 billion of investment. And we are seeing that investment going in. In, in other uh, countries in, in the US, about 70% of their production has moved across to new greener technology. We're seeing that investment going in in Europe. But there is a real challenge that it's not going in in the UK at the moment. And that's quite clearly because in other countries, government and industry are co-investing together. And in the UK, there isn't that currently that partnership between government and industry. And in fact, the investment won't happen until there is there is that partnership developing. I mean, in terms of being able to demonstrate progress. I mean, obviously, you know, you don't get the reduction in emissions until the capital investment's gone in. But actually, the nature of a capital investment project means that it it is possible to demonstrate progress. So if we looked at, you know, targets for emissions reduction of, I don't know, 2035 or 2040, then we'd have to be ordering the equipment years in advance advance of that, getting the finance in place years before then, doing the design work and so on. So there are, you know, there's probably seven, eight years worth of clear milestones on the way from operating the current equipment to uh, fully switching over to the new process technology, which starts with investment in innovation and R&D and ends with commissioning of new process plant. And those milestones are clear. They're transparent. You can read them in, you know, companies' accounts and financial statements uh, and press releases as well, actually, and demonstrate clear progress. And where we see those milestones falling into place, where we see them in European countries, in the USA, we, we can have confidence that the decarbonisation will happen. But in the UK, where, where we lack that partnership between industry and government, despite there being a target deadline, we're not seeing the progress towards it in, in terms of these milestones. And so that gives us less confidence that the deadline will be hit. But look, we could get back on track. It's a question of getting a good government industry partnership set up in order to do that. Thanks, Chris. So are there also issues around needing to communicate the message to the consumer, which result in oversimplification. Thinking of phrases like green, environmentally friendly, sustainable and carbon neutral. Do we think these are overused and sometimes just a PR vehicle? Or do we think they're actually useful phrases that communicate something to the consumer? I think they're definitely overused, Alex. You know, going back to what I was saying earlier, you know, biodegradable. What I mean by biodegradable and what I understand by biodegradable is not necessarily what you think it to mean or anybody else. We almost need um, an aligned understanding, if you like, that we need some official guidance on what these things mean. Because, you know, it goes back to greenwashing. Look round any retailer's store and look at some of the claims that are on some of the packs. If it's green, it's environmentally friendly. What does that actually mean? Flushable wet wipes. Yeah, we all know that there are flushable and non-flushable. If it was up to me, we wouldn't sell any flushable ones because at the end of the day, they all have a very negative environmental impact. Yet it says flushable, it says biodegradable on the pack, but there's no communication other than that. There's no end of life, you know, what you should be doing with things, you know, is is it's misinformation. So yeah, I think I think a lot of brands and retailers overuse a lot of those words. And I, I think again, go back to what I said earlier, we need trust from 
consumers and so we we need to be clear and if we're going to say something's environmentally friendly then explain to the consumer what you actually mean by that i'd um, add to that that these sorts of absolute unqualified claims are particularly in the sights of regulators at the moment. And they they feature in the guidance, for example, by the ASA and the CMA. And companies are being asked to be as specific as they can be in their claims, uh, as that is less likely to mislead. So, for example, clarifying that a product is carbon neutral as a result of offsetting. And to pick up on Chris's point, which was was well made previously, I think it can be tricky for companies. And, and there are, of course, claims which are clearly misleading, but there are many more nuanced cases, for example, where companies want to talk about positive efforts that are being made, perhaps thinking that the wider context is obvious to consumers. I agree with that, Richard. As I said, I know what biodegradable means to me, what it means to you would be totally different. So I absolutely agree with you. I think that's that's fair. Likewise, I think I think Richard's uh, got a good point here. Look, com- companies do have a requirement to communicate to consumers to try and get a message across and to do that in a way that's kind of simple and relatively understandable. Uh, and so that and that's important and it's important that that's done. So I can give some specific examples. If we look in the steel sector, we often use the phrase green steel or low carbon steel. And, you know, there is no definition of that, but it's essentially a point of differentiation. It's saying that this steel is more environmentally friendly or you may say less damaging to the environment than steel produced via a more conventional process. But it does cause issues. So, you know, uh, again, um, for anyone with any kind of knowledge of 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 steel, and I'm sure lots of IOM3 members do, they would know that uh, zero carbon steel wouldn't be very useful as a product if we had a if we had the metal steel with no carbon elements, no, no carbon <laughs> atoms in it, then that would be a bit of an issue. But it is a useful shorthand for the consumer uh, to talk about it in that way. So I think that uh, I think we do need to separate out the technical complexity that we're dealing with on a on a day to day basis that our industry insiders deal with, you know, that and where where we need that level of technical knowledge and complexity with something that makes decision making for consumers easier so that consumers can make choices that are fundamentally better for the environment, maybe not best, uh, better. And if all consumers were able to make choices that were better, then then that would help us on a, on a daily basis to ensure that, that we trod far more lightly on the earth. I, I agree with that also, Chris. I think our products and my experience is a bit more consumer facing than I don't know a lot about steel, I've got to be honest. But what I do know is that we need to be clear, we need to be concise, we've all got to be talking. Let your ESG team or your CSR team to make and substantiate the claims that are consumer facing, especially instead of the marketing teams. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, it's this balance between communicating that you what you are doing and also making sure that the consumer or the buyer understands why that's relevant and why that matters so richard the the european commission announced this year plans to help eradicate greenwashing and false environmental claims and the uk competition and markets authority is also on the case for those who aren't aware you've mentioned that there are changes coming down the pipeline but could you outline what those regulatory changes might be and what companies would need to watch out for yes there's some really interesting developments going on And I suppose looking at the regulatory landscape at the moment, there's at least three regulators 
the FCA, the ASA and the CMA to to sort of throw too many three letter acronyms at you, which are taking action to address greenwashing. And there are different points of the enforcement spectrum from issuing rules and guidance at a sort of fairly early stage to actually taking enforcement action. And to highlight a few of the bigger regulatory changes on the horizon, firstly, there's the Digital Markets Competition and Consumers Bill, which is expected to significantly strengthen the CMA's powers. It will be able to directly impose monetary penalties uh, of up to 10% of global turnover, so significant figures for greenwashing. So it won't need to prosecute and take those cases to court. So it'll be quicker and more efficient to take enforcement action. There's a substantiation requirement in the bill as it's currently drafted, so that if claims are challenged by the CMA and a company defends against that, they'll need to substantiate them, putting the burden of proof on companies to prove their green claims. And the bill would likely make greenwashing enforcement action easier. Uh, with the CMA currently carrying out investigations in the fashion and household essentials sectors. The second thing I wanted to cover was there are two significant EU directives regarding green claims which are currently proposed. There's a directive which is expected to modify the Unfair Consumer Practices Directive in a way which would likely make it easier to prove greenwashing. And there's also the Green Claims Directive, which sets a methodology for the substantiation of green claims. It also contains requirements for the communication of claims and their substantiation to consumers, for example, disclosing information via a QR code. And and so the the interesting question now is, will, will the UK mirror this? In the Digital Markets Competition and Consumers Bill that we have, it doesn't currently go as far as the EU. And so there's some hurdles remaining, such as the need for an offence under the Consumer Protection from Unfair Trading Regulations to prove a link between the misleading claims and their influence on average consumer behaviour. And in relation to substantiation, there's no detail in the bill on the precise content or scope of the evidence which the CMA would deem adequate. Thank you. So when you're talking about the competition market authority having more potential more powers when they won't need to go to court for enforcement if i understood you correctly but they they have this green claims code i believe and do you think that helps businesses at all or do you think that as you were saying that they're going to need as well as more enforcement do you think that businesses need more guidance directly Yes, a really good question. So the 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 criminal offence that I mentioned, the offence under the Consumer Protection from Unfair Trading Regulations 2008, that's really what the CMA's guidance has in in mind, giving companies guidance how to avoid committing a criminal offence under those regulations. And it, it's helpful. It has six principles at 56 pages. There's detail in there, although obviously it can't cover every scenario. I think three of the more tricky areas for corporates from a compliance perspective, and we've touched on some of these already, are standardised definitions. Uh, So there's a a real need for key environmental terms to be defined, which is is something Denise mentioned. 
Secondly, substantiation, and, and this is the point of how does a company evidence its green claims? The green claims code talks about a company having appropriate evidence. The new bill envisages adequate evidence, but what is sufficient, what is appropriate, what is adequate? And I think the EU's green claim directive proposal goes a bit further in terms of providing um, detailed substantiation requirements. And I wonder whether further guidance uh, might, might be forthcoming from the CMA. The third issue is interpretation in specific scenarios. So whilst there's some case studies in the guidance, what's lacking at the moment is the CMA's practical interpretation in an enforcement context because it, it hasn't taken that action. And that will come with time, um, but will of course be of little help to the first companies uh, facing enforcement action for particular issues. And you talked about the Advertising Standards Agency and do you think their guidance is useful for misleading environmental claims? So, so the ASA are probably the furthest ahead of all the UK regulators. They've actually taken enforcement action regarding adverts that they've found to be misleading, notably in the food and drink sector against HSBC and against uh, airlines, Etihad, Lufthansa. Some themes regarding the problematic areas have been absolute and unqualified claims, which we, we've talked about, claims that are misleading by omission, so they don't reflect the entirety of a business, and claims which reflect long-term goals. The, the guidance that the ASA has was recently revised in June this year. It's intended to be consistent with the CMA's Green Claim Code, what it does in, in the latest version is add the most recent enforcement action which has been taken, which gives some clear examples of the ASA's interpretation. Probably one of the most significant things about the guidance is the indication in it that the ASA will apply a stricter interpretation of the rules in the future. And there's reference in the accompanying documentation to firm but proportionate enforcement action being expected and, and I think the same approach applies to the CMA. Uh, again, I think standardised definitions and substantiation are, are tricky areas for corporates. The ASA talks about companies providing robust documentary evidence. It's considering whether more substantiation guidance is required and the area it's looking at in particular is uh, claims such as carbon neutral and net zero and it's considering how those claims are evidenced by companies to decide whether more guidance would be helpful. Can I ask a question on that Richard? Offsetting, so green certificates if you like, personally I'm not a big fan. I think all businesses if they're working to net zero or cutting their emissions should actually do it rather than um, chop money at a problem. But is there a view on that? So, you know, if we say a target for net zero, for example, 2050 or 2030 is quite common in the UK for large businesses or 2035, if people are offsetting rather than actually reducing, do you think we should be clearer on that? Yeah, the, the issue is is clarity, Denise. I think you're, you're, you're exactly right there. 
if a company wants to reduce emissions through offsetting and it wants to make a green claim, so long as it's being clear in the claim that offsetting is involved, um, then there would likely be no issues uh, in terms of criminal offences, breach of regulation. It, it's where there's an omission of how that's being achieved, which could mislead consumers where there's a problem. And obviously, the cost of making green claims, if uh, ASA or any of the others call you out. I, I think there's, and I, I could be wrong, Richard, you'll know better than I, I think in the UK, we can be fined up to 10% of our annual turnover, where in the EU, I believe it's only 1%. Is that right? Well, an, an offence under the Consumer Protection from Unfair Trading Regulations would be uh, an unlimited fine at court. But if the CMA takes direct enforcement action when it receives its new powers under the, the bill that's envisaged, it's, it's there that it would be a maximum of 10% of global turnover. Interesting. Thank you. Seems like a lot. It's a lot of money, Alex. (laughs) Yeah, I assume at the moment there's quite a small percentage that actually are going to court. Well, we we haven't seen the CMA uh, take a a greenwashing prosecution to to court. And so we we don't really have um, an indication of exactly what uh, penalties would, would be imposed. Right. Sorry, that's what you were saying about them being able to directly enforce action. Chris and Denise, going back to the life cycle assessments again, I mean, you've discussed how they should be standardised, but should they be mandatory? And with so much discussion to do with carbon emissions, do you think other environmental impacts such as water and biodiversity are becoming a bit lost in all this white noise? I think a good LCA absolutely takes into account water usage energy, transport, etc. I think, as we've just heard, the life cycle assessments are, they can be broad enough to include many of these factors. But one of the things that concerns me from a materials perspective is whether we're really taking into account some of the ethical aspects of materials as well as the environmental aspects. So it's been well publicised, you know, recently in the media, the conditions of mines in the Democratic Republic of Congo. If you own a smartphone, it contains uh, cobalt. That cobalt will almost certainly have been mined by child labour. I can't imagine anyone's very happy about that. But how do we take that into account? And it is a, you know, it is a life cycle assessment. And I think maybe we also need to think more about circularity as part of that. So that, you know, the, the true circularity of the cycle of materials. We are facing potentially a bit of an environmental crisis in the move to electric vehicles as our mountain of end of life vehicle batteries piles up. And there are, as yet, some challenges where there are there are aspects of those batteries that we don't have full scale solutions for recycling yet. It would be a human tragedy to have these materials mined in such appalling conditions in the first place, only then to find once they've been used, they're not being extracted and reused again, but being landfilled. There are certainly much broader issues than than simply you know, what is the kind of carbon emissions or, or, or the materials in use for the actual product? And I would like to see these these broader issues taken into account. Oh, I agree with you, Chris. And just building on what you've just said, a couple of things came to mind there. Before I joined FERC in my old world, I remember looking at, I was asked to consider a very specific type of fibre packaging versus plastic. And if fibre is the right, you know, material for that job, then so be it. But when I did a deep, deep dive into it, they sourced it from the Christmas Islands. 
about as far away from here as they could conceivably be. And when I did a dive into that, I found out that land usage had changed to grow the crops and not in a positive way. So I think there's lots of considerations there. Ocean plastics, people think ocean plastic, as, as it's often marketed, is plastic that's been pulled out of the ocean. It doesn't have to be the case. It can be plus. I think now that some of the rules have been changed slightly. Um, so I think to say something is ocean prevented plastic or ocean bound plastic has to come from at least 50 or within 50 kilometres of a water source. 50 kilometres is an awful bloody long way. Um, but I have seen, I have seen again back in my former life, um, I had presentations shown to me where plastic came from 125 kilometres of a water source. I would suggest that every plastic bottle laying down the side of the M1 is within 125 kilometres of a water source. Would you be happy if you were buying into the whole ocean plastic piece to consider that? Some of it collected in Malaysia. And when I asked the question, who's collecting it? How can you prove it isn't child labour? Children in very poor countries in my view and I think most people's view should be at school not walking down beaches picking up plastic bottles for pennies so I think there are lots of considerations. To the last question I mean I think we've sort of covered this in different ways but these accusations of greenwashing there's a lot of work by companies and organisations to make tangible progress towards reducing more positive environmental impacts. And I think you were saying, Denise, about companies needing to, you know, not not use the marketing team to make these claims. I mean, how else can they strike this balance between accurate and accessible messaging for a wider audience? It's quite simple. It's down to due diligence, isn't it? It's about being honest. It's about the piece we've already talked about substantiating any of these claims. And, you know, there are lots of different ways of doing that. LCA is probably the most commonly known, but it's a, it's about being open. It's about being transparent. And it's about neither sales teams or marketing teams being allowed to lead on the subject, that it really should go through an ESG or CSR team to check, double check and triple check before we go public with any of those claims. Chris, do you think that, that that's the key, that more due diligence and research and, and taking any environmental claim that you're making as seriously as you might take, say, a financial claim? Yeah, so I think the discussion today has kind of been about two things, really. So one thing is, how can we have simple messages that enable consumers to make simple decisions? And the and then the other thing is, well, what are the standards that we need in place to make accurate comparisons between products or processes or companies or organizations? And that that latter part, yes, I I I agree. I think this is a very good suggestion. If we treated that as seriously as financial claims, if we had standards, we could audit against those standards. There was penalties that behind that, then people would take that a lot more seriously. And yeah, we could talk about you know the financial side, but you could look at health and safety legislation as well. Actually, there's maybe there's maybe another model there that we could look at, and then we can then you know then we could have confidence in the claims that are made, and but also. Uh, separate that out from the sort of marketing aspect of it, which is about uh, doing things in a simple way that enables products to be differentiated. And Richard, we've talked a lot about the different agencies and the different regulation that might be coming down the track and how the EU is also looking at this. I mean, do you think that companies need to be much more cautious than they have been 
And do you think that they can tread that line by doing their own due diligence? I mean, there's the they should still be able to make claims. How can they do that? Yes, I think there's there's really loud warning bells ringing from various different regulators, as I've talked about. Uh, and so companies need to be very cautious and digest the the guidance and and look at their their green claims and other claims. But I suppose it's important that a balance can be struck because otherwise there's there's this risk of green hushing where green claims are avoided in advertising for fear of breaching the rules. And then you're still going to be in a situation where accurate environmental information isn't available for consumers to base their choices on. So I think what's crucial is help for companies which is a point that's been made in terms of detailed uh, regulation and, and guidance and building on that, and particularly on the areas we've talked about of standardised definitions and substantiation requirements, possibly also on the use of things like QR codes to provide information to consumers. It needs to be very clear what compliance looks like because criminal offences can be committed if, if companies get this wrong. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us and much appreciated. information about us visit iom3.org or to keep up to date with our latest news follow us on social media using at iom3 on twitter and at the institute of materials minerals and mining on linkedin if you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved please subscribe to hear more from us through apple google podcasts or spotify